The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On today's Court TV podcast, the drama of jury selection for the Derek Chauvin murder trial continues with a major ruling by the judge on key evidence he will allow the jury to hear. Court TV's Michael Ayala joins me to discuss that. Plus, we'll continue to meet the rest of the jury. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinny Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for downloading the Court TV podcast and uh, fasten your seatbelts. Get ready. It's happening. Uh, the trial of Minnesota versus Derek Chauvin, the man accused of murdering George Floyd, is moving forward. But we've got some very important issues to talk about before this whole thing starts. And, and two things we're going to cover in, in this podcast. Uh, the jury. You're going to meet the rest of the jury. We, we did part one last week. We're going to do parts two and three this week. Uh, but first, a major major pre-trial ruling by the judge that I think is the most important pre-trial ruling that's been made in this case. And that is involving the 2019 arrest of George Floyd. Not 2020, the day he died, but one year before, almost to the date. It was They were both in the same month, in May. But you go back to 2019, George Floyd was arrested, and the judge ruled that part of the information related to that arrest will get in front of this jury, including part of the video, about a minute 23 of the arrest video of George Floyd. Let's take a listen to the judge ruling on this issue, which the defense was fighting for. Let's take a listen. What I'm going to allow is a portion of the videotape of the one officer from the time he approaches the car until Mr. Floyd is out of the car and handcuffed. And I, again, I apologize, I don't have a timestamp, but it's very clear that there's a shot of the back of his shirt. He's wearing a black shirt. At that point, he's been handcuffed. That's all that would be admissible. Uh, the pills that are in the crack of the seat would also, there's a photograph of that, that would be admissible also as part of that uh, scenario. And then the blood pressure and Mr. Floyd's statements regarding that were made for purpose of that medical diagnosis. The whole point here is we have medical evidence on what happens when Mr. Floyd is faced with virtually the same situation. Confrontation by police at gunpoint, uh, followed by a rapid ingestion of some drugs. We don't know exactly how many, but there, there was an admission that he had done it at the time of the stop. That is medical evidence. So we don't have the benefit of on the scene medical vital signs on May 25th. So the May 6th, 2019 case is relevant only to that extent. Mr. Floyd's emotional behavior, calling out for his mother, all that is not admissible because the emotional behavior in a state of mind is not relevant. So what the judge is ruling here is that Part of the arrest is coming in, and it has to do with George Floyd ingesting drugs in 2019 when he's first approached by police. And all of this will 
will be part of the defense theory and arguments regarding cause of death. Because the defense is going to say it was not Derek Chauvin. It was the drugs. And they may make other arguments as well. But at least one of them is going to be the drugs they say George Floyd ingested when he was approached by police. Let me bring in Court TV anchor Michael Ayala. And uh, Michael, I think this is an incredibly important ruling. It's an incredibly, um, it's one I think that will have an impact on this case, an, an incredible impact, number one, on the way the defense is going to argue their case, and number two, on the way some jurors may see and perceive the victim in this case, George Floyd. No question about it. Um, I think it was a, a big loss for the prosecution here, big win for the defense. Um, essentially, what this ruling does, Vinny, is give the jury license to assume that the, the, the reactions that George Floyd had to ingesting drugs in May of 2019 are going to be very similar to the reactions that he had in 2020. And what the reactions were in 2019 was that, according to the paramedics, paramedics who will testify, is that he went into a hypertensive emergency such that he had to be taken to the hospital, put his heart at risk. So what that does is it gives the jury license to say he was in a similar situation because there is evidence that he did swallow pills. Um, I think that the tide was turned when evidence of pills or partly pill partly chewed pills were found in the back of the cruiser in the 2020 arrest. And I think that is going to give them license to say his body might have had a similar reaction, went into sort of some hypertensive emergency that put his heart at risk. And it's going to make it very, very, very uh, or much more easy for the, for the jury to now say that, in fact, perhaps the cause of death was something to do with his heart or a heart attack as a result of ingesting drugs rather than a knee on the neck. I think this is a huge ruling. And my problem with it, Vinny, my problem with it is I don't see the relationship between how much drugs was in his system on the 19th that caused the hypertensive emer emergency with what was in his system on the 20th. We know what was in his system. We have the blood levels. It's only what's in the blood that will affect the heart. So why do we need this additional evidence? I think it's much more prejudicial than it is probative. And I think the judge might have erred here. And it's going to be a difficult mountain for the, for the prosecution to overcome. Uh, don't you think, though, it, it helps the jury understand fully what was happening that day? I mean, if there's evidence that George Floyd was ingesting drugs um, at the time police approached him, shouldn't the jury know that? Well, I think the evidence that can be presented should be confined to the May 2020 arrest. They absolutely can bring in evidence that there was a white pill on his tongue. They can bring in evidence that partially chewed pills were found in the back of the cruiser with George's DNA on it. So obviously, if they want to infer from that evidence that he took drugs, that's fine. But when we talk about the effect that those drugs had on his body, they are going to be given license to take the effect that the drugs he took in May of 2019, they're going to be able to take the same inferences and say, well, he took drugs on 2020, so it probably had the same effect. I don't think that's necessary. 
I think you have how much drugs was in his bloodstream based on um, the medical report. That's the drugs that was acting on his system. You bring in medical testimony to talk about the effect that might have had on him and all the other things that go along with it. But by giving them license to now say whatever he took on 20, in 2019 probably had the same effect in 2020, you're almost handing them sort of an acquittal. How is it different than what the prosecution is going to be able to talk about when it comes to the defendant, Derek Chauvin, and, and bringing in some prior history there as well? Doesn't it go to the, the, the same place where it's trying to help this jury get a, a more complete picture of what happened that day based upon who these people are and, and, and what they've done? I think the, the, the most simple answer to that is um, George Floyd isn't on trial. Um, it's the defendant who is on trial. And when we talk about a modus operandi, when we talk about the type of things that are being brought in against Derek Chauvin, I think it's very, very relevant um, in relation to his actions on that day on this particular defendant. But it's not probative of anything. It's just something that allows the jury to infer um, what, what might have been in the mind of the defendant because his mindset is at issue. George Floyd's mindset is not at issue. Only thing we have to worry about is what caused his death. And what caused his death happened on that day. And I think that is the difference. Well, I, and, I, and I get what you're saying. Uh, but when you say George Floyd's not on trial, he's not on trial. But the, the, the mechanism or the cause of his death clearly is on trial and is one of two central issues to this case, right? Cause of death and the mindset of Derek Chauvin. So to get into the mindset of Derek Chauvin, uh, the jury's going to be allowed to hear things about Chauvin's uh, past and to get to the cause of death of George Floyd. The jury's going to get to hear a limited part of, of something that he's done in, in the past in a very similar situation. But again, it boils down to probative value versus um, uh, um, prejudice, prejudicial value. And at the end of the day, and I'll say it and I'll, I'll say it again, I think what effect anything that happened in 2019 has on why he died in 2020, I just don't see it as probative enough to overcome the prejudicial effect that it will have on this jury. Because at the end of the day, that is the check on this 404B evidence. The idea that we have to be very careful in allowing this kind of evidence in because the, the elephant in the room, Vinny, and one of the reasons why the defense wanted this in so badly is you're also able to put um, uh, George Floyd in, in, in a negative light by showing him actually being arrested by police. And I think that, again, um, undercuts some of the effect of the 2020 video. And it under, undercuts some of the, um, uh, the person who George is, that person on the ground that's crying out. You're talking about someone who now is going to, the jury is going to get to see in a very negative light. And I don't know if necessarily that's probative enough to overcome that prejudicial effect. And you say careful, though. Ultimately, doesn't the law look at the rights of the defendant a little bit more carefully in, in, in this balancing test? So the, the same test that you're applying here, you'd have to apply to looking at Derek Chauvin's past. And ultimately, he is the one on trial and he is the one with all those constitutional rights that we always talk about that criminal defendants have. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the operative word there is he's on trial. It's not George Floyd who is on trial. And again, we're talking about a cause of death. We're not talking about who the man is or what he did in 2019. We're talking about what caused his death on May 25th, 2020. 
Why not just focus on the evidence of that particular day? Because again, I just find it to be extremely prejudicial to allow this jury to say, well, if you took drugs in 2019 and we don't know how much you took then and we can't compare it to what he took in 2020, but yet they're gonna be able to infer that because of taking drugs, he was probably in some sort of hypertensive emergency. And, and from that, they can infer that that is what caused his death. I think it's, it's just far too prejudicial. Yeah. And, and I think it's an issue where the, the jury's going to need to hear a little bit from some of the experts who will be testifying as well. So I think you combine all that together. It's, uh, I think the one place where we absolutely agree is that this changes a lot. And I guess the big question is some people will perceive it as being unfair to George Floyd. Others will perceive it as being, okay, what's good for the prosecution is good for the defense. They're going to hear a little bit about Chauvin. They're going to hear a little bit about uh, George Floyd and let the jury figure it all out. Um, Speaking of the jury, Michael, um, we've got our magic number of jurors that are needed to proceed in this case. There's 14 seats inside that courtroom. 14 jurors will hear all the evidence. 12 of them will, will deliberate. Uh, when we come back, um, let's let's meet the, the rest of the jurors. We started this last week, Michael, so you ready to meet the rest of the jurors? I am indeed. It's an interesting group. It's an interesting group. Absolutely is. That is next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm coming from a standpoint that I believe that people are inherently good, you know, and, and we don't mean ill will towards other people in general. And so, but once again, this is an outsider perspective that doesn't know facts, that wasn't there, that until I'm presented with that stuff, and if I'm not on the trial, I will never be presented with that stuff. If I am on the trial, I get presented with that stuff, and then I can make that determination at that time. Those are the words of juror number 44 who has been accepted and is part of the jury panel. Uh, welcome back to the Court TV podcast. I'm Vinny Politan here along with Court TV anchor Michael Ayala as we meet the jury. This is part two. Part one is on last week's podcast, so uh, check it out if you missed it. Uh, but, Michael, we've got a white woman in her 50s She's a healthcare executive, um, white woman in her fifties. That is like the new uh, group here on this jury, which started out very young. Uh, now they're a little bit more middle-aged, I would say. Um, but uh, so, some white women who are who are on this jury now. Yeah, um, I, I thought she was an interesting choice. I think one of the things that sort of is coming through, if we're going to talk about, let's say, trends in. Um, the type of jurors that at least the defense is particularly interested in, because I thought she said some things that might have uh, raised some flags for the defense. But at the end of the day, what I'm seeing is that they really like folks who are analytical. Um, they, they really sort of uh, a pass for cause on folks who are analytical. She's very analytical. Um, and in fact, you know, had, had a number of opinions that could fall sort of in both camps. So while she did say she didn't think that they arrived at the scene with any kind of bad intention, she also said that, in fact, you know, she had some sort of um, 
experience with a coworker, uh, was willing to talk to her about some of the um, conversations that that uh, a black woman at her job had had with her son and realizing that she didn't have to have to have to have the same types of conversations. So that sort of crystallized for her this sort of differences in how the system and how police might treat people differently. So she's open, she's willing to grow. Um, so I think she makes for a very interesting and uh, I think just a, a pretty good juror. You know, um, many of these jurors have a somewhat negative uh, opinion of Derek Chauvin going in. And, and I think that's just pretty much a given. You know, what level of negativity is, is more the issue? Because, you know, who has seen the video and you, know, you finish watching the video and you say, yeah, oh, that, yeah that, was, that was fine. Of course, you're going to have that negative. So I think that's where the, the defense is always like one step behind, right? So they've got to figure out, okay, all these negative opinions, how do I find someone who, who I can trust to at least listen? And the, to me, the magic words are, you know, open to listening to the facts before making a decision. And I've seen many criminal defense attorneys who've been very effective in voir dire doing that and getting these jurors to promise and then reminding them during closing arguments how, yeah, remember during jury selection, you said you have an open mind. Well, now it's time to use that open mind. So we'll see how that plays. Let's get to the next uh, juror we want to meet. Number 52, a black male in his 30s. He's a banker and a youth sports coach. Just what needs to happen in general, just in order to see, because uh, like I said, somebody, somebody did pass away from this, so something positive either has to come from it or nothing comes from it. It was something positive could be like such a simple, maybe a few changes uh, the way things are handled. I, I don't know. I don't know what they could be, but um, I do feel like something positive could possibly come from it. I don't, I don't know what negative could come. Like I'm not the type of person that kind of harps on the negative. So I don't even know what the negative impacts could be personally. And this one, and, and, you know, throughout jury selection, the, the prosecution, the state has not challenged uh, any non-white juror from, from being on this jury. So I think that's sort of a given, right, that they are not going to uh, excuse any. But I look at, I look at this um, juror, 52. Uh, he's a banker, youth sports coach. So I kind of understand he's, he's very grounded, and I, I could see him – uh, being someone that, again, both sides are, are okay with. Uh, but obviously there's the race issue that you're not allowed to eliminate jurors for, but somehow I think it's always on their minds. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Vinny, you know, we're not talking about whether white people or black people can be um, fair, can be impartial. That's not what that's about at all. When we talk about race in the context of a case like this, we're talking about relationships with society, relationships with the police, understanding certain dynamics that exist between authority figures, let's say police officers and folks in the black community and being open to understanding that. And, and what's interesting about this case, now this is a gentleman who said that he didn't think that Chauvin had any intention of, of doing anything wrong that day. Again, very similar to what we just heard from a 50-year-old white woman. But what I think you'll find in, let's say, a Black juror is more openness to understand how intent can form based on sort of a, a relationship between um, the races. And so 
I think what you'll find why the state was interested in him, because if they make their arguments properly, he's someone who's going to be able to understand that relationship and how that might move into where the intent was formed and where some of those um, historical issues that exist between the police and the Black community might play a role. Um, but again, I agree. There was enough in his testimony that uh, if I was a defense attorney, I'd be very intrigued. Um, because again, he has a he has a, a position in life which is um, allows him to deal with a lot of conflicts. Uh, being a youth coach, he was very articulate about that. Um, he talked about the you know he just didn't understand why the other officers didn't intervene in this event. So clearly, um, he thinks that maybe there's maybe a shared sort of. Uh, uh, um, you know, responsibility there. So I think that the defense has something to work with and so did uh, the state. And again, I think a, a very interesting juror because I think he's gonna be able to provide a perspective in that jury deliberation room uh, that is very important and is very needed. Yeah, but the bottom line, if he, if he said the same words and he was white, I believe the state would have struck him. And it, I, don't, I don't think it's illegal to keep a juror based on race. I just think, I guess it's illegal to strike one based on race, but I, because he, he, he was talking about the ultimate issue, which was intent. And if someone had come into that jury room uh, who looked different, who was saying that, I, I just feel like the state would not have kept him. But I think he's and a yeah, great I juror. Just, just, just going to interject for a second. I disagree because I don't think you'll find anyone, black or white, who's going to say that those officers arrived at the scene with the intent to hurt anybody. You don't arrive, they didn't arrive at the scene with the intent to hurt anybody. And this is where sort of the state's case is going to be very murky. They have to now come up with something that infuses the intent based on what happened at that scene, or perhaps, I don't know, we, we haven't heard a lot about these previous relationships and what have you between Floyd and Chauvin. I don't know if they have evidence about that, but at the end of the day, they're gonna have to, the intent would have to have come about at the scene. So I don't I don't know if I agree with you there. All right, I, 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 and I think that's gonna be very difficult to do, but they can do it. I agree. Uh, I think they can I agree. do it. I think they'll use I think they'll use the uh, testimony and observations of those bystanders, I think will be key. Absolutely. All right, Juror 55, white woman, another white woman in her 50s. I told you about these white women in their 50s. Uh, she's an executive assistant. Let's take a listen. To be clear, I've never watched the full thing. Okay. So I don't even know what happened after I heard him say something. I totally shut it off. So I've never seen the whole video in full, in its full entirety. And, and you shut it off specifically because you found it disturbing. Correct. But you've indicated that, you know, if that's something that you had to view again, you would be able to do that. I would have to. You know, someone watching this video for the first time in this trial, I think is a problem for the defense. I think it's a real problem because go back in time. I mean, how did the world react the first time they saw the video? I mean, it was game over. Things have evolved. More evidence has come out. But the, the, we can never forget the initial impact that this video has on people. And for them to see it for the first time inside that courtroom, I think it's going to be uh, difficult for those jurors to overcome and, and, and hear what the defense is arguing. I, I think it's, it's a great uh, prosecution uh, juror here. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think, you know, one of, one of the sort of uh, 
weapons in the arsenal of the, of the defense is to desensitize a jury to a video. We saw that in the Rodney King case. The more you show that video, the less impact it has. So someone who hasn't seen it or only, only watched a little of it and then had to turn away because they were that affected by what they saw, now they have to sit through this video in full. I think it's going to have that impact that you're talking about that everyone had when they first saw the video, which is why this whole sort of you know, movement behind George Floyd started. So that is definitely something that the uh, defense is going to have to overcome. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they do that. Um, I think, again, they're going to focus on the fact that, you know, this is how they were trained and they're looking for jurors who could be analytical and not just be emotional about what they're seeing. So I guess they felt this, and, and she's in the healthcare field and you tend to find empathetic people in the healthcare field, but yet and still, um, she was very clear that she wasn't sure about what happened. She hadn't made any judgments about what happened. It was just something she didn't want to see and she needed to be presented with all the facts. And I think the defense feels very confident that when they present the facts as they have them, they think they, I think they think that the, a juror is going to be convinced that uh, he's not guilty of the crimes as charged. Next juror is number 79, black male in his 40s, works as a manager. My question for you is, why would you not be sure about whether you wanted to be a juror in this case? Okay, uh, this is my first time doing this, and I'm not from America or United. So that's why I say, if I qualify, that's the if. I'm not sure about it, so that's what it is. It's not that I'm not sure if I can serve or if I, ha I, I, I will do it. I'm not sure if I can qualify to do it. You know, I, I, why do I like this juror, uh, Michael? Someone who's like, I don't, I don't even know if I, you know, if I'm, if I'm qualified. Of course you are. Of course you are. And, uh, you know, this approach is going to be very interesting. You know, this is someone who's, I think, has a, a sense of, of um, humility and, and reverence to the system. And I think will take all instructions very seriously, will listen intently, and, and will want to do the right thing based upon uh, what he sees and what he learns. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I was a little alarmed by how neutral he was to everything. Um, I can count on my, uh, at least five different instances where he was neutral. He was neutral in his opinion of Chauvin. Um, he had not formed an opinion as to the cause of George Floyd's death. Um, he is uh, someone who has no opinion regarding discrimination. Um, well, let me ask you this. Why are you, are you alarmed because you think he's not being truthful or just alarmed that he's not thoughtful? No, I, I think, I, you know, when we talk about truthful, I think people go into that courtroom and are 100%, 100% truthful. They may not be right. They may say things that they think people want to hear, but I think they're being truthful as, as, as much as they can be in that particular moment. But what, what concerns me is, as a black man, right, he's been in this country now between uh, actually been in the area for 19 to 20 years. And to not have any opinion at all about what you saw in that video, it just concerns me. I can't fully articulate why that concerns me, but I think our listeners would understand what I mean. And how do you see that video and not have any, how can you be neutral on it? You know, you've, you've got to have some opinion. And I didn't get the sense or feel, now again, we're at, a, we're at a disadvantage. We could not see them. We cannot watch their body language and all those things. But I did not get the feeling that he was being 
untruthful. I just was concerned. I was surprised by those answers, being a black man growing up, or not growing up here, but being in, in the United States for almost 20 years and being neutral on all those things. Well, hopefully that he brings that neutrality uh, to the case and then forms his opinions based upon the evidence. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, we've got one more to get to in this segment. Juror 85 is a mixed-race woman in her 40s, an organizational management consultant. Let's take a listen. Um, negative was, you know, obviously there was a lot of uh, damage um, done to businesses and um, probably homes, um, destruction and, you know, fires and, and you know, it's, that was obviously um, negative. Um, the positive things that I see that came out of it were, you know, really giving people a voice um, that maybe didn't feel heard um, and, you know, getting, getting people um, rallied around, you know, some of the issues that they feel they face today. You know, it's interesting to me about uh, Juror 85, who is the ninth juror being seated here, um, is the, the, the protests and the demonstrations and the riots. So much of the country sees them either as these were protests that were rooted in, in a, a, a systemic problems and, and there needs to be change, and other people saw them as out-of-control riots, whereas Juror 85 was able to see, to take a step back and, and see both at the same time and understand that they're not mutually exclusive, that um, they could be very damaging, but they could be very positive at the same time. Um, so I found that uh, interesting, and I found that as as reasonable, you know, someone who has a reasonable look at a total situation. So I think that's a, a good approach for a juror. I have to agree 100%. I love juror number 85. Um, she came across as someone who was thoughtful, uh, introspective. Uh, so many of the prospective jurors that, that did not end up getting picked, I just thought there was no introspection. Um, she was someone that I had taken the time to look beyond the surface and, and see that, yes, there was good that came out of it and there was negativity that came out of it. And she, she again, was another juror who seemed to be um, pretty much down the middle in terms of her approach. She clearly had, she said she had some negative feelings about Chauvin, which as we talked about earlier, how could you watch that video and not come away with some negative feelings? But she also seemed very open to the understanding that you know, she didn't have all the facts of what happened there that day. And she was open to hearing everything that happened. She didn't have a negative point of view um, about George Floyd, but she did say police are human. They can make mistakes and should be questioned about it. And that addiction um, was not something you should blame someone for, that this is a sickness, an illness. So a lot to work with there. Someone who, again, has seems like she's seen a lot. She's had a lot of experience. She's a single mom. Um, and uh, I think, you know, has taken the time to think through these issues. And I think at the end of the day, that is what you want, a thoughtful juror. And that's what I think we have in number 85. Yeah, potential leader, potential foreperson. All right, when we come back, it's all about the ladies because as we take a look at the final five of the 14 who were seated, they're all women. And this after the beginning of jury selection when it was like seven to one, then we lost a couple, and then... On came uh, the women uh, to a jury that is now nine to five women over men. The final five when we return. 
journalist Ashley Benfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Benfield. All new episodes, Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. Well, let me ask you more concretely then. Mm. Have you formed an opinion as to the actions of Mr. Chauvin? I have not. So the, whether you, you're asking the question of how could it be this long, right? Okay. Is that indicative of an opinion that you think it was too long? Sounds like it, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I have to take you at face value. I'm not putting, I don't want to put words in your mouth, right? Uh-uh. I, I, I don't, I, I'm trying to see what's, what's I in I suppose uh, knowing that uh, Mr. Floyd died, I would say yes, it was too long. Okay. That's juror number 89 there describing uh, her opinions based on, on, on what she has seen in terms of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck. Now, she is the 10th juror to be accepted onto the panel as we look at the 14 here. Um, but 89, to me, Michael Ayala, the, the, the thing that really sticks out to me, she's a white woman in her 50s, fine. There's a bunch of them now on the jury, white women in their 50s. Um, but she's a cardiac care nurse, a cardiac care nurse. I could see a lot of the other jurors looking to her in trying to decipher what all these experts are going to be talking about when it comes to cause of death. No question. And, and no question. That, that's what makes her particularly interesting. I don't think she had the personality, at least I could, didn't get that from her testimony, that she would be a four-person. But on that one issue, she's going to be the four-person. They're going to be looking to her. Um, you know, our colleague, uh, Julie Grant, said that, you know, give me 12 um, nurses because they she feels that nurses... Uh, are, they've seen it all. They're tough. They're super smart. And, and, you know, people who can be very fair and sort of have a real sense of, of the world because they deal with all different kinds of people. And I'd have to agree. Um, you know, nurses are, you know, both empathetic, but also they've seen it all. So they have a real sense of what's happening out there. And her, her answers bore that out. Uh, she, you know, trusts the police and don't think they should be defunded. She also feels like, you know, their actions should be second-guessed if that's what needs to happen. Um, she also said she hadn't formed any opinions. But I think the thing that made it really interesting was she said, you know, uh, she, she watched the video in part, uh, not the whole video, but she was interested to find out more about training. This is someone who's had a lot of training and a lot of training for dealing with people in the situation that George Floyd was in. People who are sick on drugs or dealing with some kind of uh, issue in terms of their health. That's what these police officers were brought in to deal with. So she's going to have some empathy towards their position. She's also going to find out about their training and be able to sort of uh, take a real close look at what how that should have affected the way they acted. Um, she's going to be able to talk about some of the medical issues. So she's, got, I think, going to be an important person uh, in that deliberation. Yeah, she's going to have to translate uh, some of the doctor talk from the experts that come in. And so to me, uh, really, really important juror number 89. Our next juror, number 91, uh, this is interesting because She's more like um, many jurors we see in a lot of cases because uh, she's in her 60s. She's retired. She's a black woman. 
but I'm used to just having, you know, a nice handful of retirees on the jury because generally they are very responsible. When they get a notice in the mail, they'll come down to the courthouse and uh, they never have a conflict because they're retired. So let's take a listen to juror number 91. I guess I was kind of excited to be to possibly have an opportunity. Um, never served on a jury before. Um, I feel strongly about it being my civic duty to do so. And so when I was received the information, I was I was proud to complete the questionnaire and send it back. Okay, so um, exciting to to fulfill your civic duty, and especially on a high-profile case. Or I didn't really think of it as a high-profile case, just just to fulfill my civic duty. All right. My guess is she's not going to write a book about it afterwards. But um, being excited, I understand that because every time I get one of these jury notices, I get a little excited that maybe, just maybe someday I'll be on a jury um, to, to experience it. But for her to do her civic duty, here's my question to you, Michael, about her, because she's um, one of the older jurors and we have a lot of young jurors. We have 20s and, and 30s, a bunch of them. How do you think that that interaction will be with the very young jurors and the jurors who are a little bit older? Do you think they'll look towards the older jurors for a little bit of guidance, or do you think um, it could be kind of just two views of the world that they'll have? Yeah, that's a tough one, Vinny. I, I was I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, you have your twenties and thirties, and then you have your fifties and sixties, right? And and you know, how, I mean, my experience with the 20s and 30s today is they pretty much think they know everything and, and don't necessarily have the same amount of respect for, for the older folks, right? And, and what, what you and I, you know, folks our age can bring to the table. Um, but I'll tell you what, I got the sense from a lot of these younger uh, jurors, again, that they were introspective. Um, I think they will be open to the conversations that are going to be had. One thing that has jumped out from all the jurors, I think there's going to be great conversations in that room. And I was very excited after getting, as you mentioned, uh, older white women on the jury. I was excited to get an older black woman on the jury. I think that perspective um, had been missing before this juror number 91 was picked. And I think she brings that older black woman perspective and I, and I think that's going to be important in that jury room. There are just ways that they see the world. They they were a part of this world um, when things were very different. You know, when she was a young woman, this was a very different world in terms of uh, just about everything, including race relations and things of that nature. They've come a long way. Um, and, and, and she's also been neutral on a lot of the issues. When I look at her answers to the questions, she was neutral on a lot of things. She had seen the bystander video, but was neutral on Chauvin neutral on what happened in the video, neutral on Floyd. And so I think she represents someone who can bring those experiences as an older uh, black woman into that jury room, but yet sort of be that person who has, you know, not been swayed either way um, by any of the outside forces. Yeah, and I think she brings something that the 20s and 30-somethings uh, just cannot bring into that jury room, and that's called wisdom. Wisdom. All right, let's get to jury 92. A white woman, not in her 50s, but in her 40s, and she's a client advocate for an insurance company. I would say riot generally involves violence. Um, a protest is standing up for what you believe or, you know, okay. gathering and with like-minded people. Do you think that there was a positive or negative impact as a result of protesting in this city? 
Um, I personally think actually both. Um, I think some things led to the rioting, and I think that some people brought awareness through their protesting. Um, I'll tell you what, Michael, if I was trying this case, I would uh, pay special attention to making sure I'm connecting with juror number 92, either side, uh, because of her profession being a client advocate. She's an advocate. She's someone who could be an advocate for your position in that jury room and, and perhaps persuade uh, a couple of people from the other side to come onto your side. So if I'm either side, the prosecutor or defense attorney in this case, I am paying special attention to juror number 92. Yeah, I thought the defense sort of identified her as someone that possibly could end up as a foreperson or an influential person. Um, they paid special attention in the questioning to her. I noticed that, you know, he was really, and, and as you said before, it's he, he was asking her if she could absolutely stand her ground, if she believed something, would she be willing to stand her ground? Uh, how does she feel when she's found to be wrong about something? And he kept reinforcing those questions as, as a way of giving her marching orders. When you get into that room, are you going to stand by what you believe? Are you going to fight for your positions? And she was very clear that that's something she could do. She sounded convincing. And, and I, I really think perhaps she's someone that they might have identified as someone they want to take their philosophy into that jury deliberating room and maybe um, help to, as you say, influence other folks to come on over to uh, their side. Yeah. And, and again, we could be totally wrong with how things are going to play out, but you've, you've got to play the percentages as, as, a, as an advocate in the courtroom. And if you've got someone you know that perhaps could influence others, make sure you reach them. That is so important uh, in terms of how you try your case. Uh, the next juror, number 96, again, uh, another white woman in her 50s, a former customer service professional who recently quit her job. To be fair and impartial, um, based on the evidence that's presented in court, um, I know the public does not, would not be privy to that information, so they might not understand everything or understand why the verdict was the way it was. Um, I feel I'm, people have very, very strong opinions on both sides. Um, so no matter what, I feel like not everyone's going to be happy. Uh, speaking of, of not everyone's going to be happy, I mean, she was a customer service professional, and you're on the front lines in customer service because you're probably dealing with a lot of people who aren't happy. So when, when things kind of spark up inside of that jury room, if people are seeing things differently, what role do you think a 96 is going to play as a former customer service professional? Yeah, I mean, she's obviously going to be somebody that I think she she's going to, like I said, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting conversations in that room, perhaps even arguments. There's going to be folks feeling one way and other folks feeling a different way and each side trying to convince each other things could get heated. She's probably someone that could step in and sort of help resolve those things, maybe seek some sort of, you know, compromise in, in terms of the positions that are being, you know, put out there. And uh, I think she's certainly going to have a role, because um, as you said, customer service folks, again, these are, these are tough folks. These are folks who are listening to people's complaints all day long and trying to, you know, soothe their problems and trying to find some compromise so that they can continue to, uh, you know, uh, 
patronize their, their particular employer or whomever they're representing. So I think she absolutely is going to be used to it. There are a lot of people in the world, Vinny, who sort of shy away from conflict. As soon as there's conflict, they sort of shrink and go into a ball and say, you guys work it out. I'm over here. She's not going to be one of those people. You get the sense that as a customer service rep, she's somebody who's going to get in the middle and try to get things done and get things solved. Yeah, she could be like, I, I understand what you're saying. I understand why you don't believe uh, that that evidence is persuasive. But uh, can I interest you in this other piece of evidence that we have? <laughs> All right. Our, let's get to the 14th juror who was seated. 14, the magic number, because 14 is the number of seats in the courtroom. Although the judge has added a 15th just in case one of the 14 doesn't make it till opening statements, they can uh, uh, plug him in. But this is juror number 118, a white woman. She's a social worker, not in her 50s, not in her 40s, not in her 30s, but in her 20s. Let's take a listen. I think that's part of where I come from is always looking at every side of things. Um, I just am, I'm always looking at the why someone may have done something um, a certain way. Um, his experience before uh, with law enforcement, I thought about um, his family because I saw the family so much um, on the news. So again, it was like it was, um, I had all kinds of thoughts on him um, with his past. They've talked about his past with um, drugs and things like that. Um, just every, I had every emotion, I think, right. <laughs> about him. So. Her life experience for someone in her 20s, I think, uh, is going to be really fascinating in, in this dynamic. Um, again, she's a social worker. Uh, there are things that she said that I think either side would be happy with or either side would be unhappy with. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I was impressed with this 20-year-old. And, and I'm not easily impressed by 20-year-olds these <laughs> days, Michael. I have to agree. I mean, if you would have, if I would have just listened to her testimony and you would have told me, you didn't tell me her age, I would never, ever have said she was 20 years old. Um, she was thoughtful. And again, someone who's on the front line, someone who has made a, a career choice to be on the front lines, dealing with people that most of society wouldn't even want to be bothered with. She went into it on her own as her own choice. So that says something about her as a person. Many of her answers reflected that. She was someone who was thoughtful, someone who had a number of opinions that I think worked for both sides. So she represented, again, really a juror who I think is going to bring a lot to that room, both in terms of her experience with folks just like George Floyd, right? And also she is trained to deal with some issues and things that can come up when you're dealing with that population. So she's particularly receptive to this idea of a certain type of training. She said she wanted to hear about George, uh, about the defendant's training. So she, she becomes interesting to the defense in that sense. So yeah, she's, uh, I was impressed by her. And again, I think she's going to make a very good jury. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. Um, I look at this jury overall, and as we quickly wrap up here, Michael, um, my overall take is that I think on paper this jury is better for prosecutors because in this case, which is uh, you know upside down than every other case that we, just about every other case that I've covered or tried as a prosecutor, um, it's a young jury, and it's, it's younger and more diverse than the general jury pool in Hennepin County, which I think is advantage prosecutors here. But when I listen to them, I hear a jury that is very thoughtful and, uh, to me, unpredictable. Agreed. And I, I think the key is there, there, are, there are thoughtful people, there are interested people, and uh, a lot of them excited to be here, understand their civic duty. And there's going to be very important 
good conversations in that room, which is ultimately what you want to come to the most just verdict under the circumstances. Speaking of good conversations, Michael Ayala, thank you so much uh, for helping us through all this. Uh, awesome stuff. Uh, folks, gavel-to-gavel coverage on Court TV of the trial. Opening statements begin on Monday, uh, March 29th. Court TV cameras, microphones inside the courtroom. Uh, you'll see and hear all the evidence. If you have a digital antenna and you can't find us, please rescan that digital antenna so you don't miss the trial that is too important to miss. Minnesota versus Derek Show. Uh, the death of George Floyd on Court TV. I'm Vinny Politan. We'll be back here next week with all in-depth analysis of everything that happened uh, inside that courtroom. And, of course, uh, watch me on TV every night from 8 to 11. Have a great week. And, as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.